Jesus, thank you for uh, loving us. Thanks for uh, calling us into your story. Thanks for smashing the idol of our own story and being consumed with ourselves and our own self-obsession. And uh, I pray today that you would continue to lift our eyes to you and that we wouldn't just see what we see, uh, but we would see what we can't see. Amen. All right. Hebrews uh, chapter 2 there uh, in the first four verses talks about the fact that we actually have a great salvation. And I think, uh, I hope those who have been here listening to most of the Hebrew stuff along the way would have got a bit of an idea that this is sensational. This is incredible news. Amen? And we should be more excited about it. All right? This is the uh, weirdest thing about Christians. I've, I've spent, and I include myself in that, I've spent uh, quite a number of my years uh, with some significant doubts about the truthfulness of the Bible and about God. And in fact, Ian Hoddy up the back, I've talked with him a lot about this sort of stuff. And one of the things that just uh, made me flabbergasted when I'd come back from a period of really questioning a bunch of things is I'd come back in and I'd go, seriously, if this stuff is this good, why do they look like that? You get what I'm saying? And I'm not having a go at you, but seriously, if it's that good, why do we look like we look? We kind of look like our message is a bit lame and it's a bit average. Most of the time. Is everyone, and I'm not having a go at you. I'm not hitting you with a stick here. I'm just kind of going, that's just how it is. Like if you seriously, like Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, that God spoke to us through Jesus and that he purifies our sins, all that sort of gear. If we honestly got a hold of that and gripped that really, really well, we'd look different, wouldn't we? Because I think when Jesus comes back and we get to see things and have a fuller revelation of what he's really like, we will look different and we'll be more excited uh, and we'll have a new body to be able to handle the revelation that we'll have. Okay, the Bible's quite clear about that. But here's how I want to put you on the spot. Some of you, I reckon, or I hope at least, in the last six or eight months, um, maybe it hasn't been that long. We've only been on it about six months, maybe not even that. Um, maybe some of you just thought, man, this is really good. And I just thought, I'm just going to make space this morning for people to come up who have heard a fair bit of the Hebrew stuff and testify to what they think is so great about the salvation that we've got. All right? Because the writer of Hebrews says it's great. And if he knows it's great, then it must be great, right? Because he's inspired by God. So I thought, cool, let's have five minutes and see how many people can come up the front here and just give 20 seconds about this is what I think is really great about it. Can we do that? In my many, well not many years, but just growing up in a church, never have I come to church once and then the next week come back and it's like, same message. But to me, that was so, it was sort of like a light bulb moment where it's like, don't you get it? We need to pay careful attention. So you just don't run through it and then move on to the next thing. So for me, uh, over the past little while since I've sort of been thinking about that is just the whole idea of just meditating on stuff. And, um, and then the community group were just talking about how, how merciful God is. Um, it's through his mercy right now that this building is not going to implode on us because He's got the laws of science there and he's got gravity worked out. Um, so just every day you can be like, man, God, why don't you give me this? But it's just his great mercy that we are here right now and that he sustains us and it's through his word. So for me, uh, it's been really a big blessing just reading the Bible and taking time and just thinking, where, where is the truth? And I keep, keep remembering that, uh, I don't know if it's Lewis. Wes, you'll be able to help me out, but the whole idea where if you rake, you'll get leaves, but if, if you dig, you might get gold. So. Love it. Yeah, no, I've been reading the Bible, which is a good thing, and I just, it just came to me the other day when I was reading it, that the Word of God is His, in, it's like literally His spoken Word, 
we've always been told that, but all too often we always read through the Bible real quick. And um, Mr. Sonny was saying that, yeah, Hebrews are going through it real slow, which is really good. And I just decided one time just to read each word as if God was saying it so slowly as if he was talking, and you get so much more out of one sentence than you do out of a whole verse just because you're paying attention to each word and what it's meaning instead of just reading it, yep, 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 okay, I got it. And do you even remember that because you just read it so quick? And so that's what I've been doing is just really trying to understand that one sentence as if God, what he was trying to say, rather than saying this is what God's trying to say. It's good just to see what he's trying to say here because it might be even more important than the whole verse. Yeah, good. It's amazing stuff, eh? It was a while ago now, but um, there was one there was one thing out of the Ephesians, um, out of the, out of Hebrews, which really, uh, I don't know, I hadn't really considered that much, which was the gravity of sin and the nature of sin. I I think even though I'd been told many times, and I'd probably told other people as well that it's not just some law book and rule book; it's bigger than that. I just hadn't really grasped it that it was, you know, like. I was talking to Sondi one time before in the preparation for that particular sermon and it was like the tearing of the fabric of what the world was made of, you know, like God created the world to be a certain thing and then the whole thing is, has been corrupted and has been torn apart and made into something that it's not supposed to be because previously I, I used to just think of sin as, well, I have to make sure I don't do that as opposed to, it's not just I don't have, I have to make sure I don't do that, but it's, it's when I do do that, I'm completely destroying everything. Like I'm contributing to the destruction and big revelation I got that week was contributing to what happened to Christ on the cross. And uh, I don't know, for me, that was, it was a massive thing. So. Yeah, cool. Not sure it's really on the, on the subject, but um, what the project has been doing for me is making me question everything again, which I think is, um, you, I think I should see that in a positive sense so that I have to, go through uh, my own beliefs, question my own beliefs, and then hopefully uh, by reading the, the Bible and really questioning, meditating, um, it can grow. And that, that's what I'm asking for. And certainly um, Hebrews and all the other um, preachers that we've been having have made me question um, things. And uh, hopefully uh, with the continuing uh, discussions that we have, particularly a community group, I mean, community group has really challenged me to, um, to to read the Bible and meditate on it. And it's amazing what you get out of it when you read. Um, I'm, I've been reading Acts, and then I had to go back because I'd finished with well before the week was up, and went back and sort of summarise in dot points. And then you meditate on them, and you get so much more out of it. So yeah, yeah. not quite on the subject, but. That's yeah, what good. it's been doing for me. Yeah, good. Not that I've been through the Hebrew sin, but I wanted to testify about the greatness of salvation mm. because um, I had a, myself personally had an amazing day yesterday, but the greatness of salvation as to what Diff alluded to was the ugliness of sin and the garbage that we have in our lives. The greatness of salvation is the removal of that, is that being cleansed yeah. and set free. And and I personally yesterday had... Um, Experience and, and physically felt 
the removal of a burden I've been carrying most of my life. Yeah. Um, thanks to exactly what you were talking about before, the um, counselling of a small group of people, fellow Christians, one to another. And that yeah. is the greatness of salvation. Absolutely. Oh, you're right on. You probably weren't here for the message, but you're right on the message. That's good. That's great. All right. We just watched the Smurfs last night, and apparently they're three apples high. So uh, I've got to do a... So those of you who come to the project know it's going to be a challenge for me. In fact, it'll be an act of God if we get through all of this by the time we get to 11. So uh, let's hook in. Um, the writer of Hebrews makes it clear in 2 verse 3. He says, This great salvation was declared at first by the Lord Jesus. Now, this is a curious statement. The reason why this is a curious statement is because it's got a couple of words in there that say that are at first. All right? Now, that's interesting. All right? Because he's not actually, he can't be talking about the beginning of time. He has to be t- talking about something else. And the interesting thing about this is if you actually go back to uh, chapter 1, you find that uh, what the writer's actually referring to is he's actually saying the at first is the beginning of the last days. And this is actually, for those who love Jesus, this is great cause to be excited and pumped. All right, It may be depressing in the sense that uh, the last days started back in uh, AD 60, or 30 I should say, around about AD 30, and we've had 2,000 years and we're still in the last days, all right? But the bottom line is that one day God's going to wrap this thing up, all right? And and it's not like we're 6,000 years ago, we're 6,000 years closer to the end, and you should be excited about that, because the end's a good end, it's a good end for you, and the great salvation is such that it guarantees a good end for you. You see... Life's an interesting thing. I don't know whether you notice this, but when you're driving somewhere for the first time, the trip always seems longer because you haven't been there before. And then you drive back and the trip's shorter. You know, and in, in some ways, I think uh, maybe what will happen when Jesus, after Jesus comes back is that we'll look back and we'll think, that seems so long. And maybe some of you are a bit older and just would kind of go, yeah, that's true. I mean, when I was... In my 20s and 30s, life just seemed to be grinding its way out. Now maybe in my 40s and 50s, and where did it all go? There's a sense in which it felt long, but all of a sudden we look at it and we kind of go, it's actually short. And the writer of Hebrews, in a sense, uh, is kind of encouraging you and saying, look, you're in the last days. Jesus started talking at the start of the last days. This is exciting. This is an exciting time to be, to be living in. And then he goes on to say this, he actually says, and it was attested to us by those who heard. You see, Jesus started speaking um, when he was on the earth and then the next step was to make sure that what was said was recorded and passed on accurately. Do you see this? It says it was attested to us by those who heard. You see, at the project here, we actually don't believe in Christianity because we like it. There are some things about Christianity that we like and there's some things in it that we'd change, like not taking revenge against people, all right? That's kind of, that could be pretty fun if you're really strong, all right? If you're weak, revenge is a bad thing because you always get pummeled, all right? But if you're really strong, revenge might be fun, okay? We don't promote Christianity in a sense. We don't teach about Christianity because we think it's a good idea. We teach Christianity because we think it's true. And in fact, I'll tell you right now, if there was some incredible evidence that actually came out that was hands down, totally reliable, that the thing wasn't true, I wouldn't follow it anymore. Because Paul makes that exact statement about the resurrection in Corinthians. He says, if you keep following it, 
and it turns out not to be true, you're most of all to be pitied. So that's why we promote it to you. We promote it to you because we're persuaded that it's true. We believe Islam's not true. We think that confusion about how the first revelation comes to Muhammad, about whether it was the devil or whether it was God, which is something they're reasonably open about, we think that's a big deal, all right? Because we think that's an important question that you need to get right at the start because then you can actually deceive a whole bunch of people if you get that one wrong. We think that when the Muslims talk about the, uh, the Bible being corrupted and they're able to provide no evidence for the Bible being corrupted, we think that's a problem because we've got biblical evidence and we've got extra biblical evidence that contradicts what Muhammad wrote down in around about the 600s. We think that Buddha might have actually been onto something when he sat there and he made his observations. I'm not sure whether you've ever read any of the Buddhist scriptures, but Buddha basically sat down and he uh, observed the world and he made some wise statements about the world. And you know, when you read some of the Buddhist scriptures, they actually read a little bit like the book of Proverbs because you can learn a lot of stuff by observation and you can learn a lot of true things by observation. But we actually believe at the project here that learning things by observation is something that would be considered to be general revelation and not special. And general revelation is where you can learn things by observation, but it's not actually clear enough to know the ultimate central truth. We think Jesus came and he brought that. We actually disagree with Buddha because Buddha actually thinks uh, that there isn't any God. There just isn't one. Buddhism is actually a, a non-deistic religion at its core. A lot of people worship Buddha as God, but it's basically that they don't have a, a deity at its core. See, the reality is that we think the evidence for the existence of a God is overwhelming. We actually think that being an agnostic is a bad decision. An agnostic is someone who goes, there's not enough evidence to make a good decision. We actually think that is a decision, to say there's not enough evidence to make a decision. We think there's enough evidence for them to make a decision. We actually think that being an atheist is an untenable position. You just can't hold it because an atheist says God doesn't exist. Now, this is a question I often ask students at school here. How do you know that God's not just hiding out on the other side of Pluto right now? He might be. You can't actually, this is a philosophical term, but you can't actually prove a universal negative. The only way that you can prove that God doesn't exist is if you know everything. And if you know everything, you're God. Excellent, see? You're all onto it. We actually think that the evidence for Jesus is compelling, but we actually think it's not strong enough to overcome an unbelieving heart and a heart that decides not to believe. Because the reality is that you would never, ever be able to provide enough evidence to overcome an unbelieving heart because they always find a way not to believe it. And I think you can see that with humans around the place. I mean, you can even go up and say, what's one plus one? And they go, three, and you go, no, it's two. And they'll find some way to tell you that it's three and not two. All right? The reality is that there's very, very few proofs for anything. In fact, some of the hardcore uh, Christian philosophers would say the only proofs that you can get are in the center of mathematics. They're the only ones that give you hardcore proofs. The rest of the time what we do is we put evidence forward and we come to a conclusion based on the evidence. The writer of Hebrews is saying you've been handed on this information in a careful, accurate way. This is what Blaise Pascal said about this uh, exact thing. I 
Nathan Hitsky quoted this at school here a couple of weeks ago. There's enough light for those who only desire to see and enough obscurity for those who have a contrary disposition. I think that's absolutely true. See, it all comes back to, it's a terrible term, but it all comes back to your wanter. It actually doesn't come down to evidence at the end of the day. The evidence is very, very important, but the critical issue is going to be whether you actually want God or not. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide you a little bit of evidence this morning. I think very good evidence. What I'm going to tell you first is I'm going to tell you how uh, the disciples died. This is what we know from history. All bar Stephen uh, are not actually in the Bible. The rest of it we know from history. Now, this is really important. I remember going to a community group once. I was actually leading it and I asked someone else to do the icebreaker, right? And icebreakers are meant to be these things that uh, questions that people would throw out and they just have a bit of a talk about it and everyone would get to know each other a bit better. Anyway, so this person comes in and I'm not even making this up. They came in and they, uh, they started the night with this icebreaker. They said, what would be the worst way that you'd want to die? <laughs> That's a good icebreaker, isn't it? So we spend 10 or 15 minutes talking about being eaten by sharks, drowning, being burned alive. It was, uh, it was not the finest start, but I'll tell you, this list here has got that kind of vibe about it. Let me run through a few of them. Philip. Philip was scourged, which means whipped. Uh, he was thrown into prison and afterwards crucified around about AD 54. Peter, in the end, was crucified. Let me read you what... Uh, what happened to Peter? Jerome said that he was crucified, his head being down and his feet upward. Interesting. He's crucified upside down. Himself so requiring because he was, he said, unworthy to be crucified after the same form and manner as the Lord was. So he's, they've gone, we're going to kill you and we're going to crucify you on the cross. And he goes, not like Jesus, you're not. So put me upside down. So he hangs upside down on the cross. That's how they kill him. We get to uh, Bartholomew. He was at length cruelly beaten and then crucified. That's nice. Some of you guys are going, this is what I'm being called to. Yes. <laughs> Thomas, he was martyred by being thrust through with a spear. They just <laughs> straight through him. Simon uh, was crucified. Now check John out. John's interesting. Um, from Ephesus, he was ordered to be sent to Rome where it is affirmed he was cast into a, cauld a cauldron of boiling oil. Let's boil this guy alive. He escaped by miracle without injury. Um, he was then banished to the Isle of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation. Uh, he was Check this out. This is the uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. says uh, he was the only apostle who escaped a violent death. He's going, well, I'm giving him boiling in a cauldron of oil. Pretty violent. I'm going to give him that one. All right. Just hold on. I've scrolled in. I'll give you a couple more. Stephen, we know from Acts, actually got stoned to death. James the Great was beheaded, lost his head. Matthew, um, he wrote the book of Matthew, was uh, slain with a halberd, which is a combined spear and battle axe. Um, James the Less, at the age of 94, some of you are kind of maybe thinking about your retirement plans. Check this guy's retirement plans out. Beat and stoned by the Jews and had his brains dashed out with a fuller's club. He's going, that's not in my nest egg. All right, he lost his nest egg, didn't he? It got cracked open. Um, Andrew was uh, crucified on a cross, all right? And uh, tradition tells us he was actually crucified on a cross that was in an X shape instead of standing up. It was on its side, which is where we get the St. Andrew's cross from that's on the 
Scottish flag. Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, he wasn't one of the disciples. He was crucified. Uh, Mark, who wrote uh, the Gospel of Mark. Um, just got to find it. He, he was dragged to pieces by the people of Alexandria. Dragged to pieces, literally pulled apart, piece by piece. All right? Now, what you should be thinking along the way is, why the heck would someone have their body pulled into a thousand different pieces using hyperbole, but why would they have it pulled into a thousand different pieces if it wasn't true? I mean, he wrote the whole book of Mark, right? And he's getting ripped apart because of because he believes in Jesus. All he's got to do, if the whole thing's a G-up and it's all a lie, he's just got to go, ah, oh, just jokes. <laughs> Doesn't he? <laughs> just jokes, guys. I was just seeing how far you'd go. Paul... Uh, he wrote about half the New Testament, maybe over half. He was beheaded, right? He lost his head. And I mean, one of the questions, just a bit of a side issue, but one of the questions I think about when I, when I read stuff like this is, uh, who would God call in, in Australia to be a martyr? That's interesting. What if, what if God actually wanted to call one of us to be a martyr for it? Because people are being killed for loving Jesus and telling other people about Jesus. I mean, that's one thing that my kids just can't get sometimes. We just say, this dude is getting killed or put in jail. Well, what's he doing? You know, he must be doing something bad. No, he's just telling people about Jesus. They just don't want him to. They don't want her to. That's a huge challenge for me, but I'd ask you, what if it was you? What if God put the call on you to go to a country where... And some of you are probably going, yeah, but he's not. All right? Maybe most of us. But what if he did? Would you do it? Or maybe even worse, what if he actually uh, has got eyes on one of your children? Could do that. Could you do that? See, all of these people were someone's children, weren't they? And this is the big difference between the start of Islam and the start of Christianity. The start of Islam, the first 300 years was kind of convert or die territory. They kind of had power. The start of Christianity, they had no power. And they got slaughtered. Now, some of you may be thinking, yeah, but Muslims die for the faith too. But you know what the difference is? These guys saw it. The Muslims are dying now. They didn't see it. They're taking someone else's word for it. And as far as I understand, Muhammad didn't die a martyr. I mean, Ian probably be able to tell you, he didn't die a martyr, did he? No. He did some other weird things, like he married an eight-year-old girl. That was weird. All right? But he didn't die a martyr. All right? Now, if his neck was on the line and he went through with it, that would be a whole different story. But we've actually got up on the screen here, I think we've got 14 people who were either disciples or contributed to the Bible whose necks were on the line and they literally, some of them lost their head, they were crucified, they were boiled alive and they were torn into pieces. And they saw what happened. They saw Jesus. They heard Jesus. And just like the writer to the Hebrews is saying, he's saying it's been passed on accurately. We can trust what we've got. And that's not the only piece of evidence, but that's a pretty good piece of evidence. Is everyone with me on that? That is a good piece of evidence. I want to show you this video. This guy's uh, Charles Coulson. He actually died a month or two ago. But Charles Coulson was uh, 
Man, this is weird because this, this actually happened when, actually before I was born, I think, which is weird. But anyway, I'm just telling you this story. I wasn't there, obviously, because I wasn't born. <laughs> okay. But back in the early 1970s, some of you are going, how old is he? He's 25, all right? Do the math. <laughs> it's straightforward. Back in the early 70s, um, the Republican Party, uh, Richard Nixon, and someone who went through it would know this better than me. You're probably going to pick some holes in it, and that's cool. You can do that. I'll have an altar call to fix it up in a minute. But Richard Nixon was the president, and they just uh, the Republicans wanted to get in and um, basically into the Democrat Party's headquarters. All right. So a whole a bunch of them, I think around about seven of them, concocted this plan to break into the Democrat Party's headquarters and to steal some stuff, all right? Now, obviously, they didn't want laptops and computers and printers, right? Because they could just buy those. But they were after, as far as I understand, information. Now, Charles Colson was uh, kind of Richard Nixon's hatchet man, all right? He was like the tough guy, the, the go-getter, the bulldog kind of guy, as far as I understand. And uh, they basically concocted this plan, and then they got busted, and they got found out, right? So now what you've got is you've actually got... Um, probably seven of the most powerful men, maybe even in the free world. If you're an American, you'd say that, all right? But probably uh, some of the seven most powerful men in the free world, and they've got this situation now because the president knows about it and they've just been found out. The question is, can the seven of them pull together tight enough to actually hold this story together so that they don't get into trouble, all right? Because I think you would be able to see that there's a huge amount at stake. And this is what uh, Charles Coulson says. Hi, I'm Chuck Coulson with this week's two-minute warning. I hope you and your families and friends have a holy, blessed Easter. I will because I'll be in prison, as I've done for the last 30 years. We celebrate because we as Christians know that our Lord is risen from the dead, and in his resurrection is our hope of everlasting life with God. Indeed, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, the historical fact of Christ's resurrection is the only basis of our hope. Without the resurrection, our faith is futile. This is why critics of Christianity often try to explain away the empty tomb. They claim that the, the disciples lied, that they stole Jesus' body themselves, conspired together to pretend he'd risen. The apostles then managed somehow to recruit more than 500 people to lie for them as well, to say they saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. How plausible is this theory? Well, to answer that question, fast forward nearly 2,000 years to an event I happen to know a lot about, Watergate. You see, before all the facts about Watergate were known to the public, in March of 1973, it was becoming clear to Nixon's closest aides that someone had tried to cover up the Watergate break-in. There were no more than a dozen of us. Could we maintain a cover-up to save the president? Consider this. We were political zealots. We enjoyed enormous political power and prestige. And with all that at stake, you'd expect us to be capable of maintaining a lie to protect the president? But we couldn't. The first to crack was John Dean. First he told the president everything, and then just two weeks later, he went to the prosecutors and offered to testify against the president. His reason, as he candidly admits in his memoirs, was to save his own skin. And after that, everyone started scrambling to protect himself. What we know today is the great Watergate cover-up lasted less than three weeks. Some of the most powerful politicians in the world, and we couldn't keep alive for more than three weeks? Let's go back to the question of the historicity of Christ's resurrection. 
Can anyone really believe that for 50 years the Jesus disciples were willing to be ostracized, beaten, persecuted, and all but one of them suffer a martyr's death without ever renouncing their conviction that they had seen Jesus bodily resurrected? Does anyone really think the disciples could have maintained a lie at that time, all that time, under that kind of pressure? No. Somebody would have cracked, just as we did so easily in Watergate. Someone would have acted as John Dean did and turned state's evidence. There would have been some kind of smoking gun, a deathbed confession. So why didn't they crack? Because they had come face to face with the living God, and they couldn't deny what they had seen. The fact is that people will give their lives for what they believe to be true, but they will never give their lives for what they know is a lie. The Watergate cover-up proves that 12 most powerful men in America couldn't keep a lie, and that 12 powerless men 2,000 years ago couldn't have been telling anything but the truth. And the inmates I speak to in prison get this. So have a blessed Easter, firm in your faith that the Lord is risen, he is risen indeed. I'm Chuck Colson. That's this week's Two Minute Warning. Good point. I think the best part of that whole clip is where he says people, when they know that something's true, will give their lies for it, but they will never, ever give their lies for something they know to be a lie, which is absolutely true. I think there's lots of other good arguments about why it's or how it's been passed on accurately, but uh, that's probably one of the better ones in my books. In the times of uh, doubt, that I have in my own life, that's kind of a bit of a backstop for me. I just think, well, why did these 11 guys get axed for this thing if it was all a lie? Uh, good question and uh, one that needs to be answered. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that uh, about this great salvation, that God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. It's probably true in the whole of history that the time around uh, when Jesus came in the early church, that there was probably no greater proliferation of uh, miracles and amazing signs than around that time. You've got other pockets of it throughout the Bible, but in terms of probably sheer tonnage, you've got way more that's happening uh, around that kind of era. The question that one of the commentators I read asked was, uh, what was it bearing witness to? Well, I think it's bearing witness to God's kingly rule. And that God can do as he pleases. And it's confirming the uh, the word that's going out. And uh, you see a little bit of a pattern uh, in the Bible about that, where God seems to confirm uh, his word by miraculous things so people can have confidence. You see, God actually acts in mercy because people need the signs to help them. God's actually really merciful. God actually acts in power because people need miracles to encourage them. And he acts in grace. Uh, people need the gifts to serve and to glorify him. And we actually see this here in uh, 2 verse 4. Another little piece of apologetics evidence comes from this guy called Josephus. I know it's a fair bit of text there, but I'll run you through it here. All you need to know is uh, in the first century, um, oh, the Jews were not on the same team as the Christians. Is everyone cool with that? I mean, because they got Jesus killed, right? That's pretty much all you need. They got him killed. They're not on the same team. Josephus is a Jewish historian writing about that time and he writes this about Jesus. Now, before I start, you'll notice that there's some sections there that are underlined and in brackets. Okay. Now, what people actually think is they think that Josephus actually wouldn't say the things that are underlined and in brackets. All right. 
And they think that some Christians have messed with what he's written and added some extra stuff in there that shouldn't be in there. The problem with that argument is that we actually don't have any manuscript evidence at all that there's been any tampering that's gone on with it. It's merely that they're saying it would be weird for Josephus to actually say these things. So we're going to read all of it, but even if you take those out, I think you'll see that there's a good point there anyway. This is what Josephus writes about Jesus. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. For he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. So you can see here, it's, it would be, you can see where people are coming from when they say the, uh, there's been a little bit of, bit of playing around with the text, all right? Because you're going to expect a traditional Orthodox Jew to actually write that kind of stuff. Well, maybe not, but we don't have any reason to think not. Um, when Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified, those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvellous things about him. And the tribe of the Christians, so-called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now the bit that I just want to draw your attention to is this bit just in the top here, this sentence here. All right? I think let the sceptics have their point. All right? Even if we get rid of the stuff that's in brackets and underlined, we've still got something really interesting going on up here where it says, for he was one who wrought surprising feats. All right? Now they knew. Josephus knew, and they knew that Jesus was able to do miracles and to do amazing things that people didn't expect. You see, I just need to make a couple of points here about spiritual gifts and the project. All right? I, uh, I come from a, um, a Presbyterian heritage. All right? And the Presbyterians, and there's a number of denominations that are like this, Presbyterians and, uh, I, I know this is not a denomination, but the Jehovah's Witnesses think the same thing, and um, there's, there's quite a few kind of uh, people from a Reformed persuasion or, uh, who actually think that the spiritual gifts have ceased to exist. All right? They were around for the early church, and then they just kind of disappeared. All right? Um, and they're called, uh, if you want to call them a rude name, you could say, ah, oh, you're a cessationist. All right, and uh, they think that they're doing the right thing, but anyway, the bottom line is I've actually split away from that mode of thinking. And in fact, there's a number of Presbyterian pastors who um, have done that, but they actually kind of keep it on the sly because the official line in the Presbyterian church is that the spiritual gifts aren't in operation anymore. In fact, there was one, I was in a band that went down to Tasmania to uh, play around a bit down there and the pastor down there uh, I think after we'd been down there, got into a whole bunch of trouble because he started speaking in tongues um, after um, after we'd been down there. And that's just a big problem for the Presbyterian Church. All right, And he actually kept it quiet for a long period of time. And I know this probably raises a whole bunch of questions for a lot of you about what the heck is that anyway. And I'm not going to help you with that today. But I'm just going to say, uh, some of them do believe that. And at the end of the day, I think uh, it would be fair to say my dad has... Uh, made that transition some time ago. One of the pin-up boys of the uh, Presbyterian theologians, Don Carson, has written a whole book um, kind of explaining scriptures that talk about that to say that the uh, spiritual gifts are still in operation now. Anyway, long story short, we think they're in operation and uh, we are hoping and I think we're already seeing God utilising uh, spiritual gifts that he gives to people in the project because at the end of the day, 
God distributes these things according to his will. All right, And if he wants to get some stuff done, he's going to give people gifts and abilities to be able to get the things done that he's planning to get done. All right, We also believe this uh, psalm out of uh, Psalm 115.3 that says our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God can do whatever he wants. And, if, and you know what? We should pray like he can do whatever he wants. One thing I was just sharing with the guys out here today is um, I wonder how much... Our, uh, our prayer life and our spirituality has been infiltrated by a naturalistic worldview. And let me help you to understand what that is. A naturalistic worldview is that everything can be explained by what you can see, by physical things. You know, and I wonder if you actually sat down and went through and did a critique of the way that you pray, does it sound like you believe Psalm 115 verse 3? Or does it sound like you believe naturalism more where you sit down and you go, Okay, well, I can see all these pieces here and that just needs to come over here and fit that and fit that and we're kind of working it out and rationalising it in our heads about how we can make everything fit together when the reality is that God's in heaven and he does whatever he wants and nothing hinders him. He's actually not inhibited by anything. He's not restrained by anything. He does whatever he wants and not that he gets up in the morning because the Bible says he doesn't sleep but it'd be like he got up in the morning and he's going, what am I going to do today? And he's just going to go and do it. The sun came up, came up today and he had a plan about what he was going to do today. And there wasn't anyone that it was irritating him, that he was tripping over and he's just going, I wish I could have done that, but I can't do that because that guy's stronger than me between 11 o'clock and 12 o'clock a.m. All right? He just does whatever he wants, which means that you should pray like he can do whatever he wants and not pray like a naturalist. He's just going... Okay, well, that needs to happen there and that one and then that person needs to come over here and I need that car to be fixed here. Now, God cares about the natural things that you can see and he says to pray to him about that. But you better believe more than that. You better believe that he can do more than that. You better believe that he's totally unrestricted and you better pray like that. All right, there's a scripture, I think, in Ephesians that says that God can do far beyond what we ask or even imagine. So you better pray with imagination because he can do more. He, who's ever had, I mean, stick your hand up if you want, but who's ever had a time where something's happened that's just been the sweetest thing and you just come away from it and you're going, I didn't even pray for that. Has anyone had that happen? Yeah, all right. And it's almost like this, we have those moments where it's like, I can't even imagine what could happen here. And then God just goes and does what you can't imagine. And you didn't even pray about it. Then you feel guilty about it and you get on that Lincoln self-righteous legalistic thing instead of just going, that was so sweet. Thank you so much. You were so uninhibited. You can just get whatever done that you want to get done. First Corinthians uh, in uh, chapter 12 there uh, talks about spiritual gifts. This one, this is not meant to be an exhaustive thing about spiritual gifts today. Um, but it says this, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work in miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret? And what do you think the answer is he's expecting? No. No, they don't. Right? But the big idea here is it's God's family and he's going to give people the tools that they need to get the work done with each other and with the world around them uh, when they need them. 
And that does, I think that actually doesn't necessarily mean that someone can um, get some kind of word of insight about someone else and then all of a sudden we call them a prophet and they're a prophet for the next 40 years, all right? It might be that God actually just communicates something to someone somehow and then they just share it with someone else and uh, it, it just helps people to grow. It helps people to move further along in their walk with God and maybe it helps them to be a little bit more missional with the people around them. You see, there's lots of ways that God wants to help. And there's lots of giftings that he's going to give to make the help possible. Now, the big problem with human beings is people, human beings get sidetracked on the gifts, all right? God does something amazing. He does something that goes beyond our imagination. Then all of a sudden, we just get obsessive about the thing. And what happened? And the weird thing is that God made it, God's made it really clear biblically, your goal is to be obsessed about him and keep him in the center. And the weird thing about humans is as soon as we get broken out of our uh, naturalistic assumptions and what we can see in front of us and we get to see something that kind of looks, oh, there's something else going on there. We're just going, let's get that, you know. And Jesus is kind of standing there going, well, why don't you just get me and keep chasing after me and pursuing me and I'll keep giving you what you need because I do whatever I want and I'll help you. Now, this might be a little bit of a shell shock for some of you I don't know what your backgrounds are, but there's some times where some people have prayed for me where they've uh, been incredibly accurate in, in knowing where I was at and knowing what was going to be in the future. In fact, this, the start of this church, we had someone come out from uh, South Africa and prayed over me, and literally the only people in that room um, were, uh, that knew about this, that this church, this is in the early stages when we are discussing it, were... Pretty much, I think it was just Diff, Ian Shelton and myself. And I, I mean, this guy's coming around and he's going to pray for me and I'm just kind of going, I'm not giving you anything, champ, all right? I'm putting a paper bag over my head, right? Because that's what I am. I'm, I'm actually, I'm by nature a skeptic, right? So I'm putting the bag over my head, figuratively speaking, I'm going, I'm giving you nothing. I'm not giving you a smirk, an eyebrow raise, a, a twitch or a scratch on my nose. I'm not giving you anything because I want to know whether this is a legit thing, because the Bible's very clear about that. You don't just have someone come up and say something random to you, just go, oh, that must be God, all right? The Bible's very clear about the fact that you need to go and test it, all right? Which is, and I'm the testing guy, okay? And some of you are going, this sermon's a test for me, all right? See, I told you, I'm a testing guy, right? So you um, you go and you test it, right? Now, the weird thing about this guy is he prayed over me, and, you know, he just nailed it down. He just knew, kind of, and it wasn't like that. You know, like, well, I shouldn't say it like that, but you know, sometimes you can read the horoscopes, don't, don't read them, right? But if you haven't done it, you just kind of go, this is, uh, I'm just going to test it out, see if they know something, right? And it's so general, you just kind of go, that's me, man, that's me. I'm going to love someone today. It's like, I hope so, all right? You're supposed to do that every day. And there's been times in my life, and they haven't been abundantly, Frequent, but there's been enough times in my life where people have prayed to me, prayed for me, and said things to me, and it was just obvious that they seemed to know something that they shouldn't have known. All right, and I just think that's because God just wants to speak to you through them. All right, and we're all for that at the project. Right, and you, you may have noticed that we don't do that on Sunday mornings. Okay. And the reason why we don't do it on Sunday mornings is because to us, it looks like most of the time when the spiritual gifts are being used, it's in a smaller context. And Paul in the Bible was actually very concerned about people who come to their meetings. He's very concerned about making sure that they understand what's going on. 
So Sunday mornings for the project, uh, there may be some times where someone gets up and shares something that God's put on their heart, but I'm just giving you some kind of a guarantee here that it's going to go through some testing before it arrives on a Sunday morning. Okay? Because we're open to that and we want God to speak to us. Um, but mostly, we think God speaks most powerfully and most consistently through the Bible and through what he says about his son Jesus. And we think that the Holy Spirit likes to use the Bible as his num- number one weapon, which is the sword of the Spirit. Yeah? So that's what we're going to give you because we think that God does stuff in your life when he uses the word in your life to teach you things. But we would hope that there is a free-flowing expression of the giftings that God have, God's given to people in community groups and that it's big time, that it's happening. All right. And if there's something we all need to hear, you'll hear about it on Sunday morning. All right. The fact that you haven't heard anything yet is not because we're suppressing everything, it's just because there's nothing to say in terms of a miraculous, supernatural kind of thing. All right. But every now and then we'll share some stuff with you and I think we probably have a little bit at different times uh, where we think God might actually be leading us in a certain direction. Which is why you should be in a community group if you come to this church regularly. All right. Because there are some things that God does that aren't just bricks and mortar naturalistic things, um, that he does through each other. And he speaks through each other and he encourages people. And Katie Lush just talked about that before. She talked about how God actually did some stuff in her life through some other people. All right. And it was that whole thing like God did some things in me that no one can see. But it's it's weird, you know, because she stands up and she goes, I can see it. I can see what God did in me, but it's, he did some stuff in me that no one can see. And, and I think God does that a lot of the time, doesn't he? He just does stuff that you can't see, but then you see it. And you kind of go, how does that work? You just go, I don't know. Because the truth is, he's spiritual, we're spiritual and physical. And at the moment, we've got some kind of weird spiritual blindness going on because we can't always see the stuff that God's up to. Oh, man. I didn't make it. I'm about halfway through, so I'm going to wrap this up. All right? You're going to have to come back next week for part two. Um, Pray with imagination. All right? Pray with imagination. Don't pray small prayers. See, God's, God's a good father. He wants to give good gifts to his children. He knows the best gifts to give. So, I mean, there was a guy that taught at the school here a while ago. His name was, uh, Joe, Joe Vogels. And, um, uh, it's probably a little bit the way that he used to pray that probably just unsettled me a little bit. But generally, I love the way he prayed. All right. Because he seriously sat down and he said, and he, he just prayed with imagination. He'd sit down and say, right, oh God, okay, so we'd love to see this happen. I want you to see if you can do something over there. And then he just, he just dream prayers. All right? Which is what I reckon you've got to do. Now, you don't dream prayers and then get upset with God because he doesn't give you what you want. All right? Because most of the time what you want is not the thing that you should want. All right? But what you find is that as you get older in the faith, what you want is what you should want. All right? And the more you keep in line with what God wants, the more he just comes through and just does stuff. It's like, God, I pray that people around me would get saved. All right? And they'd come to know you and they'd be saved by you. They'd come to know this great salvation. All right? Now, God doesn't sit up in heaven and just kind of go, yeah, well, just give me a few minutes. I'm going to think about that one because I'm not sure whether I'm actually, I'm not sure I want to do that. You know what I mean? 
you, I mean, you're praying stuff in line with his will. Like you get up in the morning and going, okay, I know that there's someone in my life at the moment that's really struggling, God. So today, I just really want you to show me how, how I can encourage them. Maybe there's a scripture I can just text to them. Maybe I can make a meal for them. Maybe I can just go and serve them. Maybe just go and sweep their floor. Just lead me into what needs to happen. All right? Help me to see what I can't see. So that they can see what they can't see. Oh, I'm going to finish. I hope you got something out of that today. Listen, if, if you have any doubts about Christianity, it doesn't help to just do nothing about it. All right? And the cool thing about uh, Christianity is, uh, well, you got Thomas basically said after Jesus was risen from the dead, he said, look, I don't believe it. I don't believe he's risen from the dead until I stick my hand in his side and my fingers in his wounds on his wrists or whatever. I'm not going to believe it. All right? And Jesus is not threatened by people who doubt. He gets angry with people who are unbelieving, all right, because that's a belief position. But people who've got doubts and got questions, he invites them in. He says, come in. Come in and check it out. Come and work it out. And the weirdest thing is, I mean, I had a haircut. I always talk about my haircuts here, if this is your first time. I had a haircut probably 18 months ago, and uh, all of this dude's information came from uh, SBS docos. All, the, all his information about God. I'm just going, man, seriously? Like your eternal destiny is going to hang on watching a TV show. Isn't that weird? Like anyone can put together a TV show. Go and read some authors. Go and read some people that disagree with each other and see where the evidence leads. And I think you find it leads to a really good place. I'm going to pray. God, I pray that you just do something with what I said today in our hearts. And uh, I pray that if there's anyone who uh, has got some doubts and got some questions, that you'd help them to pursue the doubts and questions to a point of resolution, Lord. That they just wouldn't sit in a place of uncertainty because you are just an incredibly generous God who goes beyond the bounds of what we can see. You go well beyond the physical. And you want to invite us to a place where we pray with imagination, where we follow you, and we're just kind of going, what's God going to do next? What's he up to? And it's probably not going to make sense to me. And you want to take some of us, maybe, Lord, who go through doubt and struggle with doubt, you want to bring some resolution to those so that we can actually get to that place where we pray with imagination and so that we see what we can't see. Please help all of us, Lord. I pray that this week that we would pray with imagination and that you would do things that stun us this week that we wouldn't expect. And God, thank you for all those times where you do stuff in spite of us. When we never pray, when we never have faith, you just do stuff because the Lord God's in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. And uh, we are so blessed to have a God like you who is so loving. And when we see a verse like the Lord God is in heaven, he does whatever he pleases, we don't need to fear you. We don't need to fear your rage or your anger or your frustration or your destruction. Because we know your plans are good. Thanks that you never change. That you didn't get up in a bad mood today that you didn't even need to get up because you didn't go to sleep last night.
Thank you, Lord, that at our most uh, vulnerable time last night, when we were asleep, but really anyone could have done anything to us, you weren't. And you kept us and you watched over us.